I work very closely with the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats. Um, for every, nearly everything I've done, I've, I've done it by working across the party. But you will only be able, be able to work cross-party if you've got a good reputation in the House. If they're, if they're confident that, uh, that, yes, you can deal with that, he's, he's fine. Um, and, of course... Um, the Labour peers will talk amongst themselves. What's Hackley like? He's asked me for a meeting. Oh, he's hopefully said something nice about me. And likewise, the civil servants. Um, if you were a new minister in a department, the, the, the officials in that department will very quickly find out from a pal in another department what's the minister like. That's what they'll, as soon as you get appointed, the officials want to know what is the minister like. My name is Johnny Ball. And I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. Lord Attlee is not only grandson of one of Britain's greatest serving prime ministers, but is a former Remy officer. He has served overseas on operations both in civilian and military life, as well as being a government whip during the Cameron years. Our host Johnny first met Lord Attlee during his time as a Remy cadet, where he helped him on a restoration project. So it's remarkable, nearly three decades later, they reunite over politics. It's time for you to meet our guest. It is an absolute huge privilege to be sat today with Earl Attlee, the, one, the grandson of probably one of our most famous post-war prime ministers, a former officer in the Territorial Army in the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers, and also a former member of the government as a chief whip. Lord Attlee, how are you? Really good to see you after many years. Um, what many people won't know, actually, is that we met, first met, in my teens, when I was a Remy cadet and you were working on a project in Ashford uh, on that's now in the Remy Museum. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and, and what that means to you, first off? Well, the project was a large uh, trailer to go behind my Antar tank transporter that I've now sold. But the trailer is still at the Remy Museum. It's not in operation at the moment, but it has been in operation. Uh, and we use it to transport the a vehicle known as a Conqueror Armoured Recovery Vehicle. Um, and it's quite a large tank. It weighs 60 tonnes and it's 13 foot wide. Uh, and that trailer is the only trailer that we've got in the Rumi Museum or access to that can carry the Conqueror. So you alluded to the fact that, and I mentioned that you were serving in the in the Rimi. And as a young cadet, seeing those projects and interacting with the, the grown-ups, the adults in the Remy was a huge inspiration for me to then go on and join, do my own adult military service. But can you tell us a little bit about your military service, why you joined the TA in the first place, what you enjoyed about it, uh, and where it took you in your career? 
Yes, just winding back a little bit to the your experience uh, doing something practical in the cadets. When I had the opportunity, uh, which I did have a few times in my military career, especially after I got commissioned, I was careful to give opportunities to the cadets uh, and whatever I could, I tried to do one weekend, which was primarily about uh, giving cadets something interesting to do. So I can't remember which TA centre it was, possibly Barnet, um, but we took the cadets to Borden Heath um, and allowed them to play with the recovery vehicles. I'm not sure we'd be allowed to do it now, um, but we they had a lovely time and I can remember them in their tent and the instru- their, their adult instructor trying to get the little darlings to go to sleep because they were squealing with excitement. Oh, it was, it was such good fun. And that cohort that we worked with um, down in Ashford, I know a number of those cadets that actually went on to regular service in the Remi. Um, I chose different cat badge, of course, uh, but the, that's for another day. But I know how important those opportunities were for young people and long may it continue. Cadets is so important. And it's important, even if they don't actually join uh, either the regulars or, or the reserves. 100%. Yeah, and as we know, the development it does for young people to go into civilian employment afterwards as well. My own brother was in the cadets, didn't go into the military service afterwards, but he still talks about cadets 30 years later. It's phenomenal. Uh, it really is. But in terms of your own military service as well, you deployed in operations as well. Is that right? I have deployed on operations. Um, but if we just rewind to when, when I started and why I started, I started my military career with Stowe School CCF. Um, when I first started, it was compulsory, um, and then they made it voluntary, and it was even more successful. Um, and then when I was probably 16, I was allowed to go off with our local TA unit. Just a few of us went off, um, probably carefully selected by the housemaster for those who perhaps not quite as academic as others, um, and it's a great opportunity. You wouldn't be allowed to do it now because I was a 16-year-old cadet going off on an internal security exercise uh, with a TA unit. Uh, you absolutely wouldn't be allowed to do that now. But actually, when you think about it, the risk, you know, a public schoolboy, well able to look after himself intellectually, is not going to be messed around with. <laughs> so it wasn't a real risk. Um, but it's a fabulous opportunity for me. Uh, and then from there, um, as soon as I could, so that's 17 and a half, I, I signed up with the TA um, and then I was leaving school uh, and so moved to, we, I lived in Finchley and I joined 240 Tank Transporter Squadron at Barnet um, and that's where I developed a love of tank transporters and heavy recovery vehicles and things like that. And it's never left you since, that that passion for vehicles, heavy recovery vehicles, um, and obviously influenced your choice of cat badge as well, where we first met in the Remi. Yes. Um, my first cat badge, actually, well, the first cat badge was the second time, the Wessex Volunteers. Um, and then when I moved to Barnet, I was cat badge Royal Corps Transport. Um, and then uh, amongst other training, I went to the Army School of Mechanical Transport at Leckenfield and became a qualified Army driving instructor. And that is still useful now in the House of Lords, because when I'm speaking about road safety and driving tests and anything like that, I can speak with authority that no other person in Parliament has. There's no, no other qualified driving instructor that I know about in Parliament. And that's experience that I picked up in the reserves. 
Um, so that was about 1980, and but I realised I'd have more, even more fun uh, as a recovery mechanic. Um, so I transferred to the Remi, um, and then was g- given a Scammell recovery vehicle to look after. Well, what fun! And I think when I first joined the TA and then evolved into the Army Reserves. It, there is that phrase. It's about the end, being in the entertainment's business. It's such good fun. Yes, there's the serious stuff. You and I both deployed in operations as well. Uh, and we have to do that bit. That's important. And it's important to have upfront conversations with those looking at joining the reserves, particularly these days. But at the end of the day, it's just enormous fun and a privilege to be able to do in, um, such service. Uh, but you spent some time overseas in operations as well. And I think you served as a, as a watchkeeper in Iraq. Yes. Um, After I got commissioned and after I came to the Lords, um, I did various things overseas, taking it chronologically. In the winter of 93-94, I went off with uh, an aid agency called British Direct Aid, and we were carrying mainly non-food aid across the lines of confrontation in Bosnia, and that would mean several crossings uh, of, of checkpoints um, you couldn't use local drivers because they get beaten up by the warring factions so you could only use international drivers um, but of course my military experience was in, invaluable it was quite funny when I was being um, uh, having my driving test f- for that because the examiner said, you're just an experienced lorry driver but he said you're not a professional lorry driver, are you? And I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> but I was driving according to the book because I, was a, uh, I couldn't be criticised on my driving because I was a driving instructor. <laughs> you must have seen a lot of observations with the current crisis in Ukraine, the, the hunger and the, and the desire for particularly those from the armed forces and from our country to jump in vans, take supplies, cross-border. That must evoke some kind of memories from that period. Now we're seeing it playing out again with those supply chains going out across Europe. Yes, in fact, British Direct Aid started, um, now the chap who's now Lord Bolton, started it. Um, and I, when I started working for him in, in, in winter of 93, when I applied, I didn't even realise he, he was the son of a peer, but he was. Um, he kept that quiet, and I kept quiet that I was a peer um, and a commission officer, um, but he must have looked me up and knew exactly who I was. Um, but that was an interesting experience, but it relied upon my military training, and I saw the damage that war does. I saw house after house after house destroyed. Um, I remember being in a room with young Bosnians of all faiths and, and, and ethnicities, they just wanted the war to stop so they could get back to their lives. Um, and then British Direct Aid deployed to Rwanda. Rwanda happened in 1994. And about the 13th of Jan 95, my telephone rang. And then I was running the NGO on about the 19th of Jan in Rwanda. Wow. Um, and again, my military experience gave me all the skills I needed um, to run an NGO, um, and frankly, that's much more powerful than a commanding officer in the army. I was absolutely running the operation um, in, in Rwanda, maintaining the relationship with the United Nations, uh, who were working for UNHCR. Um, the mission was to maintain all vehicles and plant operated by uh, UNHCR in Rwanda. So I had the technical knowledge and experience to do it, 
um, and I had the military knowledge to know how to run a team overseas when I was the absolute boss. Oh, those transferable skills. We talk about we talk about those hard skills, and obviously you've got those in abundance, particularly with the the technical trade, the and the the driving, and um, and the remi elements as well. But it's those transferable skills of resilience, the ability to get stuff done in those austere conditions as well, which is why we're so well suited for the third sector, I believe, and perhaps why we're seeing the the veterans cohort respond so positively to this current crisis in Ukraine. Um, I've got a good friend uh, who's running a charity uh, called um, Bridge to Unity, and they've just done numerous runs out to uh, Ukraine with medical aid supplies and the way the community is given a center of gravity uh, and veterans have responded as well, driving across Europe many hours. So we're, we'll do it again. I think in the future, sadly, um, there'll be the necessity. Um, and um, I did mention, of course, it'd be remiss not to have this conversation without mentioning your grandfather is probably your, your surname is probably the one of the most recognizable surnames in our politics uh, still today. And and some might be surprised, despite the fact that your grandfather was one of our most famous Labour prime ministers, uh, that you actually started as a crossbench peer um, and then became a Conservative peer, serving in Cameron's government as yes. well. Um, so some people might be quite surprised by that. And indeed, your own father went on his own political journey too. Um, you must have been asked that many times about, about why. Um, but how do you reconcile that? And in terms of that cross-party working and that journey. How do you reconcile that these days? Um, can we just rewind to my grandfather for, for a moment, momentarily? Certainly. Important to remember that he had a strong involvement with the cadets in the East End of London in his developmental years. And then uh, when the First World War came along, he took a commission um, and, and served overseas on operations um, so, and then when he came back from that and got into Parliament, um, basically he'd had a good war. <laughs> um, in my case, on the, um, I had no political involvement whatsoever before I came to the House of Lords. So I had done no debating society, no local government, no politics at all. I knew uh, enough about current affairs that some of my age and background should know, but no more than that. Um, and then I suddenly found myself with a seat in the House of Lords that I never expected to get, and neither did any hereditary peer since 1911, because we all expected the system to change before it became our turn, and sadly my father died very early. He was only 63, um, and, he, and he passed away. Um, so I suddenly found myself in a seat in the House of Lords, and in my opinion the only correct course of action would be to sit on the crossbenchers and I remember Ted Graham, the chief whip of the uh, Labour Party. Um, as soon as I turned up, he jumped on me to make sure that I was at that time, with, and possibly out of ignorance, wasn't just going to go and sit on the, on the Tory benches. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to sit on the crossbenches. And he was happy with that. Now, the crossbenches uh, looked after me really, really well. Um, so I'll say at question time, I might be sat next to Viscount Tony Pandy, George Thomas, former Speaker of the House of Commons. Uh, and they, the crossbenchers as a whole spent a lot of time tutoring me on parliamentary practice. And I remember one occasion when I said to George, I said, well, that's all right then, or words that effect. And he said, all right, look at the minister's body language. He's doing the tuck, 
dance. And it turned out it, the, the policy was flawed, should we say. Um, but it taught me that as a minister of the dispatch box, you need to completely control all your body language, all of it. And you need to be absolutely confident. Um, interesting, some people suggest we should have a horseshoe. But actually, when you're the minister, in my opinion, it's all about convincing the people opposite you, your political opponents, but they might be your friends, um, your political opponents, that actually, on this occasion, the government policy is correct. Um, and the, I find it quite fun actually trying to do that. Um, and most of the time I succeeded. I guess a lot of that body language you probably learned from some difficult border crossings as well from uh, working overseas or... Yeah, no, there is one bit of body language I learned on on, uh, on border crossings um, and especially in Africa um, and that is um, they, they they want you to get fed up because they're, they're delaying the junior soldier in the Rwandan army, delaying the head of this NGO, whatever, love it. So what you do is you get a paperback book out and start reading it. And they absolutely hate it. It worked every single time. Get the paperback out and start reading it. They hated it. And they say, no, go on, go on, go on. Well, I was going to say, do they know, you know, British are very good at queuing and, you know, very patient people. So perhaps that's, they underestimated that. But it's really interesting hearing you talk about how the, the House of Lords operates in terms of the opposition, government ministers, and you use that word, they may be your friends. Yes, indeed. And I guess that's one bit of politics that people really don't appreciate because they see the punch and Judy over in the Commons, that a lot of people actually are friends and colleagues behind the scenes, no matter what political background i mean has that been your experience absolutely so um i've been very lucky because when i was a minister in the lords uh, a very very junior one i have to say a a government whip so i wasn't actually a policy determining minister um but i did deal with a few sticky subjects and for the first two years i think i dealt with all immigration matters in the house of lords and managed to survive the experience um but the uh, Labour Party knew that when I was the opposition spokesman, I gave them a decent deal. So I recall one incident when I was going to, on defence policy, I was going to change our policy on, on something quite sensitive. I can't say what it was, but it was quite a sensitive issue. Um, but I rang up the minister's private office and said I was not going to be helpful because the po- policy of Her Majesty's opposition had changed. And then it, that enabled the minister to get her ducks in line uh, so she wasn't sunk when, when, when the question came up. But that's acting decently. And so when I was the minister and I accidentally cut a £1.7 billion electrification scheme by slightly incorrectly answering the question, the Labour boys said, don't worry about it, John, you've got another question tomorrow and we can clarify it. Nice. <laughs> and, and so that gave me the opportunity the next day... Um, uh, to clarify that the, the, the scheme wasn't cut. Wow. Wow. The, yeah, those abilities to, to be able to negotiate and to be able to work with our political opponents. Um, you know, people don't really, they see it's so adversarial our politics. And you, you mentioned that the horseshoe idea to the chamber as well, but of course we know that our politics isn't like that, um, either in the Lords or in, in the Commons. Um, and you, you mentioned that you served as whip in the Cameron government. Um, and was that during the coalition years? Yes. Yeah. So I was, I was um, at that time, 2010, I'd like to think I was one of the most experienced conservative whips. I've been on, on the front bench 
since on and off, not all the time, but on and off on the front bench since um, uh, 92. Um, and then uh, with the coalition government, I was in, uh, invited to be a government, which was a job I wanted anyway. I loved it, lo- loved doing it. Um, but in the Lords, government whips uh, uh, articulate government policy and, uh, and answer at the dispatch box. And what a government whip in the Lords says is as has as much potency as what a, a, a departmental minister will say. It's just coming for another member of the government. So you're definitely ministers of the Crown. Yeah, it's very much politics by consensus at that stage because obviously we had the Conservatives and the Lib Dems coming together yeah. you know, from that famous meeting in the in the Rose Garden between yeah. Cameron and Clegg. Um, and I think people look back with rose-tinted spectacles now, pun intended, yeah. um, at the Cameron Clegg and, and the coalition of the Lib Dems and, um, yes, perhaps characterised by the beginning of austerity and as a necessity, some might argue. Uh, but in terms of the general feel and the way in which politics operated then, I think people look back fondly at coalition. Um, is that a fair reflection? Uh, I think we wouldn't want to do it again. Um, and Cameron was very pleased to get out of being in, in coalition, not have to worry about what Nick Clegg thought. But on the other hand, it was good. Um, and of course, Cameron and Clegg were more or less cast in the same mold, mold um, slightly different politics. But you know, they both had a young family and young wives. They were very, very similar. So it it, it worked quite well. Um, occasionally, there were, we did have some difficulties, and we had some days that we just forgot about. Um, but it 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 it, it worked well. Um, but I mentioned that, that in the Lords, minister, government whips uh, articulate government policy and they speak at the dispatch box and answer questions to, and, and take legislation through. Um, but the whipping in the Lords, because the Lords are very independent, um, it's very much a two-way process on the flow of information. So if I ask one of my flock, uh, are you OK for the vote on Wednesday on the XYZ bill? He might say, well, I'm not sure about that, actually. And I'd say, well, if you're not sure, I mean, you wouldn't vote against the government. Well, I'm not sure. Are you sure you haven't got a business meeting? Uh, but then what I'd do is I'd go and see the chief whip and say, I'm getting some resistance on this. And the other whips would do the same. If they're getting any resistance, so you might get one person not happy with the policy, that doesn't matter too much. But if the chief whip detects that lots of respectable peers aren't happy about the policy, the policy might get changed before anything gets goes wrong. Um, so you've very much got to listen to what your flock is feeding back to you. It's not a question of saying, be here to vote or else. You have no power as a, as a, um, a government whip in the House of Lords. It's a purely persuasion and, and your own personal qualities. So less the enforcer, more the kind of early warning system, yes. to use that military analogy. Um, that's really interesting, actually, because my impression of the whips has probably been the former of that more enforcement rather than the the early warning. And, and to understand the character of the whips in the Lords as well, that's certainly something I've learned from this conversation. So thank you. So a pastoral component to it as well, because um, I have one of my flock um, was at the centre of a... a relatively small political storm at the time um, and she needed support from me so she might have been at a difficult party meeting I was sat next to her 
not necessarily agreeing with her, but, but with her providing pastoral support. And that's important, the pastoral support. If you really want to, and the, the, of course your flocks, they all talk to each other and, and, and say what their whips are like, and um, it's the whole package you offer as a whip to uh, um, your flock. I guess another analogy, it's almost like a modern day company sergeant major because, um, yes, they can enforce if they need to, uh, but at the same time, the pastoral care that the company sergeant major gives to uh, the men and women. Um, so there's lots of transferable skills there, perhaps from military life, um, as I bang on about all the time with campaign force and um, espouse over. Of course, that, I mean, that is a very common fallacy that in the military, you get results by just telling people what they want to do. So in my military career, um, I never gave anyone a direct order. You hear in a film and say, I order you to do that. Well, that's, that is a suicidal course of action. Um, in, and in Rwanda, I had a problem where one of my drivers didn't want to go and drive a fuel tanker um, to a place called Shangugu. And it's quite a long journey, quite relatively hazardous, um, uh, you know, more or less, certainly he would succeed in it, but it wasn't. It wasn't easy. This is a you know overseas, um, in the middle of Africa, um, and he didn't want to do it. I wasn't quite sure why he didn't want to do it, but um, it was quite a job for me to persuade him to do it. Um, but I never directly told him either. You move that tanker, or you'll be on the next flight home. Um, and I had put someone on the next flight home. Then one guy had a fight. Um, and I, I'd known him from the previous operation in Bosnia, and the boys and girls wondered what I was going to do about it, and they found out before breakfast the next morning because he's gone. Wow. <laughs> so that's a bit of, if necessary, um, uh, actually ruthlessness. I mean, Clem would be ruthless, I can be ruthless as well. Um, but there's a difference between being ruthless um, and being... A basket. Yeah, yeah, I think the moment you start sort of shouting is the moment that you've lost in the military. If you were unable to exhort your leadership through persuasion and um, your own Example, example, yes, yes. And likewise, again, another comparison with with a government um, dealing with civil servants. In my opinion, if a minister loses their, uh, their temper once with officials... Um, he's lost 20%, he or she's lost 20% of their capability of getting officials to do things they'd rather not do. So you hear ministers complain that the officials won't do what they say, but actually, to my way of thinking, they've got a leadership problem. And my experience of, of being in government was that leadership was even more important than I expected it to be. Yeah. No, and there's been uh, lots of chat in the media about ministers and how they behave to the civil servants. Perhaps we won't go into that conversation for today, but I'm completely with you um, in terms of that stylistic and that transfer from perhaps how people perceive the military to be, you know, we're not really shouty people at all. Um, We are. But we're very clear um, what the intent is, what needs to happen. Um, And we have something called mission command, so we know what the intent of the commander is two levels up. Um, and so if you can't quite do what you were asked to do, because you know the intent two levels up, 
and, you know, and absolutely what your immediate superior wanted. If you can't do that, but if you could do something that would have the same effect, um, you do it. It's exactly the re- those for those reasons that as an 18-year-old in West Belfast, on the day the Good Friday Agreement was being signed, I knew how to behave and operate because that intent was passed down the chain of command. Um, and there are many examples of that through recent operations ever since of how um, the most junior people have been able to know how to behave because of the leadership um, of our officers and generals set over us. Um, and as w- if we go back to um, your, your role as a peer, um, how, you mentioned that that evolution earlier on around around the House of Lords and your expectation whether or not you'd, you'd um, be called for your turn to serve as a peer. Do you think that how much has the House of Lords evolved over recent times? And do you think, what will it, what's its future? Will it continue to evolve? Or are we at a steady state for the time being? Well, first of all, we'll never be at a steady state. Um, actually, although it's, it's easy to argue it's changed enormously, uh, especially with the um, departure of most of the registry peers, I don't think it has changed that much, really. It's still extremely collegiate. Um, if I want to make something happen, um, really make something happen, I'll, I'll make it happen by talking to um, peers in different parties. Um, so when I was trying to get the Leveson reforms implemented, um, Section 40 of the Crime and Courts Act, um, I worked very closely with the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats um, for every, nearly everything I've done, I've, d- I've done it by working across the party. But you will only be able, be able to work cross-party if you've got a good reputation in the House. If they're, if they're confident that, it, that, yes, you can deal with Attlee, he's, he's fine. Um, and, of course, um, the Labour peers will talk amongst themselves, what's Attlee like, he's asked me for a meeting, oh, he's hopefully say something nice about me and likewise the civil servants um, if you were a new minister in a department the, the the officials in that department will very quickly find out from a pal in another department what's the minister like That's what they. as soon as you get appointed the officials want to know what is the minister like and will he back you up if something goes wrong or will he go for cover well I think that is sage advice to any of our armed forces community listening who might have preconceived ideas about party politics, that actually we're really well placed from the armed forces community because politics is about reaching a consensus and working with your political foes. Uh, sometimes it might be your friends in, in normal life, uh, but actually reaching that consensus to get things done. And I can give you an example. Um, there was a proposal to ban 50 caliber target rifles. Now, obviously a 50 caliber target rifle in the wrong hands is a very dangerous bit of kit. However, you need to be extremely use, uh, extremely skilled to be able to utilize its capabilities. Um, and yes, I can fire a service weapon, but I couldn't use the capabilities of 50 caliber target rifle. I'd be scared to fire it. Um, but um, there was a proposal to ban these. Um, but I felt that was unnecessary and we could achieve the same effect if we improved this, the transport and storage conditions. So I had a meeting with uh, officials in the Home Office who I'd done business with before and they trusted me um, so we could talk frankly about a solution. We came up with a solution that was special storage and transport conditions for these uh, firearms 
um, and then rolled back into the Lords, saw the opposition front bench spokesman for the Home Office in the Lords, and I said, right, I think we've got this problem here. What do you think about this? He said, mm, I think I'll be all right. Yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> and I said, OK, well, we'll have to tell the Minister what we've agreed then. <laughs> and it was more or less like that. It was, it was having the relationship, people trusting you, both in the, in the civil service world and your political opponents, that you're not going to do some horrible, dirty trick on them. You're absolutely upfront and say, you know, I think we should, we don't need to ban these, we just need to um, be more careful about the storage conditions. So based on that lived example, the way that you've operated, what would kind of be those uh, words of advice that you might give to someone from the armed forces community, look, perhaps looking at local government or, or parliament or, or even actually just working in the civil service in public life. Um, in terms of their background skills and values, what would be those things that you would say lean into in order to get stuff done? One of the things I was, when I became commissioned, obviously the demands on the commission officer are far greater. I, of course, I went, got meteoric promotion one moment, I was a full corporal recovery mechanic, and next day I was a second lieutenant. Um, but one of the things I picked up on, on the training is you got, Physical courage, will you run towards the enemy? But there's also moral courage. Um, and you might have the physical courage, but if you haven't got, might not have the moral courage. And the moral courage is more important the further up you go up the food chain. A moral component of doing the right thing, even when it, it, it might be a bit difficult, moral component is extremely important. Lord Attlee, I think on those words, we'll end it there. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, it's Johnny here. But guess what? It could be you right here on this part of the podcast. Whether you've got an organisation or a business or an individual that needs supporting, we are reserving this spot for members of our Parliamentary Business Club as a direct benefit of joining our club and supporting campaign force or indeed sponsors of the podcast too. So this is something that interests you. Then get in touch at johnny at campaignforce.co.uk. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate or become our mate. Thank you.